Thank you, Steve. Uh, thank you all for being here today. And uh, I, we are going to, uh, I'll be preaching on Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, if you're joining us, this is the third series, uh, third sermon in the series, our church improvement series we do every year. We talk about who we are as a church. Um, in the past, we've looked at core values and how they define uh, who we are and what we do as a church. And this year, we've looked at our, our mission statement. And, and Steve and Ken have talked about uh, uh, how we serve and how we love uh, discovery groups and ministry teams and the ways that we use our gifts. Uh, today, I'm going to be talking about um, declaring. Um, if, if you think back to the beginning of the service today, did you hear the purpose statement being read? Our purpose is to display the greatness of God. Uh, that's the why we exist as a church. Um, the mission, the, the sentence that comes right after that, that's about what we do as a church. That's what we're going to do. It's, it's how we're going to fulfill our purpose. Um, do, you, do you ever go on, uh, to the grocery store on a mission? Uh, I'm, I'm usually a very missional shopper. Um, can be a little frustrating for my wife. I, I go in, I get what I'm there for, and I get out. Um, it's, uh, it's, sometimes, however, I do get distracted from my mission um, I might end up going to say Menards, and instead of getting the sandpaper that I'm there, and then getting therefore, and then getting out, I maybe browse the power tools. I uh, I uh, pick up some paint brushes for a future project. Look at the clearance section, see if there's anything good. Uh, try to remember that one thing that Bethany said she needed that I, I can't remember what it is. Um, it what happens when I forget my mission is I spend more time, energy, and money than I had originally intended. I might even endanger my mission uh, for which I'm there. I might even endanger the purpose uh, of my uh, trip to Menards, which is to provide a comfortable, safe home for my family to live in if I, if I get off mission enough. So whether you're a member, you're a regular attender, a visitor, it, it is, but those who consider River Hills your church home, let's start with, with us. Our mission's what we do as a church. We all need to be reminded of our mission. Uh, it, what we, we do, we think it's really, really important, vitally important, uh, but we can't do everything as a church, right? You just can't do everything. We all have limited time and energy. Missional creep can be dangerous. If we aren't reminded of our mission, uh, we'll be like me, wandering Menards, endangering my mission with distractions and things that aren't central to what I wanted to do. Um, and visitors, those who are newer to our church or, or don't know us as well, you need to know what we say we do as a church. Now, we recognize there's lots of things churches say they do or, or that they're going to do. Uh, for instance, you might be looking for a church or, or, or that, that's primary mission is to teach doctrine or serve the poor or provide a place for friendships or help me raise my child to know Jesus. And it's important, we want you to know that we don't think that any of those things are our primary mission as a church. Now, we, you, you should find those things happening here, and, and we hope and we pray that those things are happening as a result of us pursuing our mission, but we don't see them as our primary thing we do, our mission, so they don't end up in the mission statement. Um, the primary thing we do, or rather the first part of our mission statement is we declare the greatness of God. And other things, the thing, the thing that we want to do, the thing that this church, its leaders and our members, that what we're going to spend our time and our energy and our resources 
the things that we're going to encourage each other to do as a body. Uh, to, we're going to help everybody to use our mouths and our lives to show how great we think God is. Uh, how we think he's better than food or marriage or children or money or sex or hobbies or anything. Uh, declaring God's greatness. So the passage today, Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, it is geared to help us focus on our mission. It's a snapshot of a man's life, Isaiah, who had his mission made blazingly clear to him. Um, the man was Isaiah, and the event in his life was the sight of God. So uh, I appreciate if you pray with me before we, before we go, we dive in. Lord, I pray that you would be with us today, opening our eyes to see the beauty of your word, uh, the, the goodness of the truth contained uh, there, uh, Lord, that we would have soft hearts that would, be, would come under submission to your word, uh, what you've said uh, to us, Lord, that we would want to know you and see you, uh, hear what you have to say and go change from this place with a fresh vision of who Christ is. Lord, we need you to do that work. We need your spirit to move among us. So we pray that you would send your spirit to work in our hearts, changing us more into the image of Christ, giving us eyes to see our great Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So uh, please have open Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 in front of you. But let's, let's talk about the context of the passage a little bit. Um, this was written roughly around 740 B.C., uh, you know, if you want some uh, comes context, about 230, 240 years after Solomon reigned in Jerusalem, right? So it's a, you know, a couple centuries after Solomon and the, the golden years of, of Israel. Um, it was written in Judah, specifically in Jerusalem. Uh, the original audience would have been the people of Judah, uh, God's people, the chosen people, uh, the remnant. Um, they had just, they had been through a series of strings of good kings and bad kings. There's period, been periods of spiritual infidelity and spiritual revival. Um, Israel and Judah are separate kingdoms at this point, right? That, that split has occurred. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of uh, political turmoil and, and national turmoil there. Assyria is the, uh, is the dominant world power at this time. It's an empire that stretched through a, a lot of the known world at the time, and it threatens the national security of Judah at this point. Uh, but not only that, this great superpower of the world at the time, uh, Syria to the north uh, is threatening Israel, I'm sorry, Judah, and Israel is threatening Judah as well. Uh, they're uh, causing lots of problems with wars and, uh, and, uh, and fighting. Um, when Uzziah, um, you'll see his name in the text, but it's also, it's also called, he's also called Azariah in other places. But, but when he was king, Judah had experienced a time of political and military success and prosperity. Um, he had uh, promoted lots of good agriculture and uh, engaged in some military victories and, and increased the military defense of the nation. Uh, but things were going to get worse from there uh, as Judah's power waned and was eventually completely lost. So that's what's going on, but what is Isaiah's overall message? What is he saying? Well, the overall message of his book to this people at this time was God's judgment is coming, and it is well-deserved, but God is sending a savior for his people. 
That's the message that Isaiah wrote. We see the judgment very clearly everywhere you look in Isaiah, um, but the promise of a savior looms large as well. There's, you know, think of Isaiah 53, it's a famous passage. I'm just gonna read one verse for, for it, uh, from it. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. It's there, it's the promise of the Savior is there, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, and so Isaiah had this purpose to write this book. Uh, he, this is what his message was. What was it? Why did he write this? Well, he wrote this book to warn God's people to flee from their sin. Um, he was declaring God's righteousness in, his, in God's judgment, and he was holding out a sure hope to God's people that he will provide a way for sinners to be with a holy God. That's the, that's the whole book. Uh, but we only have eight verses to deal with today. So what's the, what is this passage? Well, uh, this passage, everything that's come, the most of what's come before this, this first five chapters, it's been oracles of judgment. Uh, that's the primary content. Isaiah, often speaking on God's behalf, is acting as a prosecutor, bringing charges. He's saying, you've done this and you've done this, and, and thus says the Lord, you've done this. It's a... Uh, it's this litany of judgment and charges. And what comes immediately after the passage is, a me- is you know, the message of Isaiah's whole book. It's, uh, it's, it's judgment and hope. Uh, listen, see if you can hear this starting in verse 9, which is right after our passage today. This, this people's going to keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So that's the judgment, but in verse 13 it ends with, the holy seed is its stump. In other words, there's a green shoot of life in this dead stump of this people that God's going to cut down and burn in his just wrath. So judgment and the hope. So that's, that's like the immediately context of that verse. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, people of Judah, it's this time of political turmoil, a book of judgment, but a, also a book of promised hope. But what about this specific passage? How does, what does it have to say? What was Isaiah trying to help us see in the, to, in the original audience to see? And what's God telling us about worship in this passage? Well, first, if you would, look with me at the opening verse. Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's death is the first thing we see. Now, um, I, when you look at that, don't just think that, that's to give us a time frame, right? To help us set a date for when this stuff is going on. That's not, that's not the main reason it's in there, I don't think. It's, see, the original readers, when they saw in the year that King Isaiah died, well, they would be thinking political turmoil, succession, uncertainty, the end of prosperity, uh, right? This is a king who had some <laughs> mixed reviews. All right? it's, uh, it's, it ended the end of his life uh, you know, being judged by God for trying to usurp priestly prerogatives. It was, it was, you know, this is... So that's what he starts with. But then what does Isaiah see? What does he see? What vision does God send him? Well, he sends Isaiah a vision... Not of dead King Uzziah, but of the true king, seated on a throne, towering above the temple with a royal robe, the merest bottom part. Some translations say hem, or, right, this train, so it's the bottom part. This, this, it, it fills the whole temple. This, 
It's these angels, these seraphim, these burning ones, beings of blazing fire, zipping around God's throne on powerful wings, uh, hiding their faces in their lower parts from the sight of his glory, showing that even these supernatural beings, these, these beings of superlative power and might and beauty, they dare not look upon God in his glory. And as they fly, they're singing to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the, and the sound of their worship and praise makes the foundation stones of the temple shake and tremble. Smoke rises from the temple and fills it. It's as if the world itself is coming undone at the presence of God and the angels who worship him. The king of Judah is dead. That, that hardly matters in the presence of the one who is holy, 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 who fills the whole earth with his glory, who commands a host of fiery servants, and in whose presence the very fabric of reality starts to smoke and shake. See, that, that, that picture of God as a king who rules over everything and who stands above all things and who is more glorious than anything, that's that's the first thing we need to see in this passage. You see, it's the first point, is that the real king sits on his throne. And this is easy to forget. This is easy for us to forget. When, when you're a nation without a king or a country without leaders that deserve the name of leader, um, it's easy to forget that. See, we don't experience the death of a king the same way uh, a monarchy in ancient Palestine would have experienced it. But, I, but I, I would like you to think with me with all the little deaths that we do experience in this realm. Maybe the loss of a political party we support, the passing of an unjust law, war, inflation. Uh, well, let's be real for our church, right? Uh, the death of a king for us might be the loss of a senior pastor, the pain and confusion of feeling separated from relationships that we held dear, the feeling that the church we knew is slipping away or changing or not doesn't feel like our home anymore. Each of these things can be for us the equivalent of the year that King Uzziah died. Uh, these things can feel like they're spinning out of control. And what do we need when this is happening? Well, what God thought Isaiah needed and what God thinks the people Isaiah was talking to needed, and that, that's us, was the knowledge, the vision, really, that God is sitting on his throne. He is in control. He rules all things, high and lifted up. When things are sliding out of control, and I don't think I can stand the kingdom crumbling just a little bit more, and there's another email or a text or a conversation that feels like a death, what I need to realize is that the king is not dead. The king is on his throne, and he rules. So that's the first thing that we see, but it's not the only thing. Um, if you think about it, that's, if that was the only thing this passage had to tell us, we'd, we'd actually be in some pretty bad trouble, some pretty serious trouble. Because look with me at Isaiah's response to the sight of this, of this true king revealed in his glory and power. What's his response? Verse five, 
I, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I, I, for, I, I am, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now you see, the, the sight of the king is good if the king is on your side. The sight of the king is good if you love the king and are confident the king is working for your good. The sight of the king is good and reassuring and awe-inspiring if you are one of the king's people. Um, but Isaiah realizes right away that this is not his natural status with this almighty king who causes the earth to tremble and the temple to smoke. Uh, he realizes that, in fact, the sight of this king is not, for him, a good thing. Um, the sight of this king means his death and his eternal destruction because he is a man of unclean lips and his people, the very people of Israel, are a people of unclean lips. So that phrase, a man of unclean lips, and we don't want to misunderstand that and think that Isaiah means just that he says wrong things sometimes. Now, we know that's not true. If you think back with me to, to Ken's series in, in Proverbs, we, we talked about this, right? The idea that the lip, what, the, what it means to say unclean lips. Think about, consider these passages with me. Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Or I uh, also got a passage from Luke 6:45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then finally, in Matthew 15:18, this is I like this one. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the, from the heart, and this defiles a person. See, lips are surrogates and windows. They show what's in our hearts. And the sight of this glorious, magnificent king causes Isaiah to realize that the window to his heart, his lips, it shows that he's full of filthiness before God. Now, now that's this astonishing. Think about who this guy is. He's, this is Isaiah. He lives as an upper-class Israelite in a time of relative faithfulness to God and his covenant, following the law, living as one of God's people, uh, right? But Isaiah realizes that his good life, his position in Israel, and his being part of the visible people of God, the chosen nation of Israel, it, it means nothing when it comes time to face this king. Uh, none of it will save him. None of it will save you or me. God is not impressed with our good works. God is not impressed with our church attendance. God's not impressed when we get our doctrine right and when we align ourselves with the correct theological positions and have the perfect church model and are doing things in the absolutely right way. Now, all those things might be good things, but they will earn you and me no favor with God, cleanse no uncleanness from our lips, and do nothing to save us from the destruction that in this lucid moment, Isaiah realizes all of us so richly deserve. You see, we sin uh, with our lips or in other ways, not because we sometimes mess up uh, or, or we don't know any better. This passage is clearly teaching that Isaiah knows our true problem isn't that we sometimes do bad things. It's that you and I possess hearts that are bad. 
Uh, We were made to love and enjoy and glorify God, but we love and enjoy and glorify anything and everything but God. Uh, Whether it's food or sex or money or children or comfort or careers, our hearts are constantly producing idols that we bow down and worship, seeking our satisfaction with things that we weren't designed to find ultimately satisfying. This, we have, this is something we have to take seriously if we're really going to see this almighty king, the Lord of hosts, as he is. He's the king we've dishonored in every aspect of our lives. As I, I had a conversation not too long ago that helped me reflect on this in my own life. There's something as seemingly innocent as food, right? Now, food. Food is created, it was a, it was created as a good gift by God that, that we use to nourish our bodies, right? And, we give, and I give thanks to God for it and join it as a blessing, pointing to the greater blessing of knowing him. Uh, it's, food's amazing, if you think about it. It points to the creativity and imagination and wonder of the God who created it and the senses of taste and smell he created. And he created me to enjoy these things. That's amazing. But what do I do with it? Well, you know, I personally, I tend to eat emotionally, right? I, I have a hard day at work or baby's up really late, and, and I seek comfort in the pleasure of tasty food, even though it might be bad for me and I don't really need it. Um, I feel under pressure and stressed, so I bury my problems uh, in, in the pleasurable sensations of taste and smell and the satisfaction of a full stomach. See, my tendency is to turn to something as simple as food and eating into an idol. It, when my life is hard, instead of going to God and finding my satisfaction in him, instead of confessing to him that I'm in pain and I need him to fill my soul with joyful confidence that he is good, instead of finding my comfort in the arms of a God who has promised good for me and to care for me, I bow at the idol of sugar and fat and sweet and salty. It, What a terrible thing to proclaim with my actions that I think food is better than God. I think calories and a full stomach provide more comfort than the one who created those things to point to his own glory and wonder. To treat food like my real savior and that Jesus stuff is like, you know, it's worthless for what I really need right now. It's, It's not just a mistake when I do this. It's a declaration of rebellion against the good and loving and perfect king of the universe. Now, I don't know what your idols are. I don't know what things besides God your heart tends to turn to to give you comfort when your life is hard. I don't know what things you proclaim with your life and actions are more satisfying than the creator of the universe. But I do know that you have these idols, these filthy areas of your heart, the same as me. We are a people of unclean lips, and I am a person of unclean lips. Now again, as I said before, if that's where this passage ended, if that's where things ended here, this would be such a hopeless vision, right? This would be, this is where God left us. What hopeless lives we would have, right? As, as, But just, just when we think that this vision of this glorious king sitting in almighty power 
surrounded by flaming beings of glory and beauty who, sings his pra- who sing his praise, who sustains all nature and whose very presence causes it to shake and smoke. That's when the sight of this king gets even more glorious. Because despite what sinful Isaiah, despite what the sinful people of Judah, despite what sinful us are owed, there's hope. God does not leave us in our sin and then destroy us as we so richly deserve. That's not what we see happening. Instead, he makes a promise to Isaiah. That's my second point, is that the real king sits on his throne forgiving rebels. See, that promise comes in this vision in the form of an angel bringing a coal from the altar and touching Isaiah's lips with it and declaring Isaiah innocent, safe from the destruction that Isaiah knows he so richly deserves. The first thing I want you to think about with me is where does that coal come from? Look in verse 6. Do you see it there? Comes from the altar. You should be asking yourself, what altar is that? Well, it's the, it's the, altar, for burnt, uh, it's the altar, altar for burnt offerings, where for decades, uh, centuries even now, animal sacrifices had been burned on behalf of God's people so that God's wrath did not burn against them. Uh, it was the place where a substitute was offered on behalf of God's people, taking the wrath that they deserved. It was the place where atonement, forgiveness was made. Now, what Isaiah needed was something or someone to take the punishment that he was owed for his rebellion, right? And that is, and what's astonishing, if you think about this, it's astonishing before this vision, he had it, right? The nation Israel had the temple, they had the tabernacle before that, animals were offered regularly. Isaiah himself would certainly have faithfully offered sacrifices of praise and sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, But Isaiah still said, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. He knows that they weren't enough. Those sacrifices did not pay for uncleanness. The blood of goats and sheep and bulls cannot take away the impurity that is in his very heart. It can't make him not a rebel against this holy Lord of hosts. He needs something more. He needs a perfect sacrifice a sacrifice that cleans out his unclean heart. And where is he going to get that? Because that's what's promised to him, right? Well, there's, this is a little convoluted. I hope, I, I hope you can follow me through this. But, this is, um, but it, it, the New Testament shows us how this is going to happen. Look with me at Matthew 13, 14, or just listen as I read it. And, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples about his ministry and parables, right? He says this about his ministry and parables. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. So Isaiah, the, the ministry of, uh, that Isaiah was talking about, that was Jesus' ministry. But then look in John 12, 37 through 41, where it becomes crystal clear. Though he had done, uh, John's talking about Jesus, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. 
41, this is the crucial verse. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So in 9 through 13, Isaiah 6, 9 through 13, those are Jesus' words. He was talking about his ministry that when he incarnate, uh, became incarnate, uh, that he would carry out. Do you see what Matthew and John are saying? They're saying that the words in Isaiah 6, 9 through 13, the message that God gave Isaiah to declare, those were Jesus' message to Isaiah. Uh, John's explicit in verse 41, the king of glory sitting on the throne, that's Jesus. This glorious God, this Lord of hosts, this Lord of armies, this holy king is going to sacrifice himself. He will be burned up on the altar of God's wrath. He will be burned up for our sins and the glowing coal of his sacrifice will be applied to Isaiah and all others who turn to him. It's amazing. It's just, it's right, this king, this glorious king, is gonna give himself to be burned up on the altar of sacrifice. And that's the coal that's applied to us. And that's what happened to Isaiah. Look at how he responds to this reality. He says, do you see it there in verse eight? Send me. It's the, see, that's the response of all Christians when we realize what this has been done for us and we see this king. It's, it, the reason it's the response is because all humans are worshipers. What has to happen first is that we've, we can't get the cart before the horse. What has to happen first is we have to realize uh, is that there are, our truest and deepest joy is in this amazing and magnificent king who, who sacrificed him on the, himself on the altar to purchase forgiveness for us. Once we've realized that, though, we have to tell others. We have to proclaim with our mouths and with our lives and with how we live. You see, the, rebel, the real king sits on his throne forgiving rebels who respond with grateful praise. See, as I said, humans are made to be worshipers. Worship is the culmination of enjoying something, of finding something good. It's the, I enjoy this so much that I feel the need to express how much I enjoy it. Um, think about a really simple illustration. If, I, if there's a really good restaurant I enjoy, I don't hoard the knowledge of it to myself. You should be able to tell that I love uh, the, the restaurant by what I say and by how I act. I let my friends and then my coworkers know that this is a good restaurant. I tell people it's my favorite restaurant. I delight to take my family there and I love to get other people to enjoy it as much as I do. Um, it, the things I do because I delight in the restaurant are praise. Now if I take it too far and uh, if the restaurant's what consumes my heart above all other things, you, you'd call that worship, right? I worship the restaurant. Another one, how about you think about my relationship to my wife? Now, imagine if you came up to me and you asked me, how, how, how Paul, how do you feel about Bethany? And I responded with, uh, yeah, I love her. W would you be convinced? <laughs> I, I really doubt it. Um, no, instead, I delight to tell you about who she is and what I love about her and why I think she's great. There's enthusiasm and an affection and passion in my voice, right? Uh, if I love her, the best way to characterize the way I talk about her and my love for her is praise. Um, if I take it too far, where my wife is what consumes my heart above all other things, you'd be right in calling that worship, right? I worship her. Now, now 
I know that the word worship has lots of religious connotations uh, for us and for the culture we live in. Uh, so I, I really want us to make sure we're thinking about the word correctly. Um, it's not necessarily bowing down low or, or coming to church and singing worship songs or, or saying certain religious words. Now, th those can be acts of worship, um, it, but worship is not just those acts. It's the, it's the act of expressing how good we find something. Uh, there has to be an affection, an emotional component. Uh, in, in our context as Christians, that something is God, uh, the thing that we find good and we express how good we find it. It's God. And more specifically, it's God as revealed as the, in the person and work of Jesus. That's who we found good. Uh, it's, it's the natural outpouring of our hearts that have looked at God and, we, and found that he is very, very good. And not only is he, you know, yeah, okay, there he's good, but we've personally found him satisfying, someone I enjoy and who my heart is drawn to in affection. And when we find that, when that's true of us, I don't run to food to give me comfort. I don't expect my kids and my relationship to other people to provide me ultimate happiness. I don't expect my marriage to be the source of my eternal pleasure. I don't look to the relationships and the condition of my church as the source of my joy. Rather, I look to Christ. He's what makes me happy. And other things can be good, and they are, but they'll never satisfy me like he does. He's saved me from the greatest sadness and disappointment and terror that I can imagine. So all the other disappointments and sadnesses and terrors that the world and life threatens me with, they don't frighten me into running around frantically trying to protect myself from the things that it threatens. See, the joyful let me use this next word carefully, but the joyful duty, joyful duty of Christians, just like the joyful duty of Isaiah, send me, is to tell this and to show this. That's our mission. Tell about and show this great king. That's how we declare. First, tell. I need to tell this. I need to come to church on Sunday and declare in song that my Redeemer, the one who got burned up on my behalf, he lives and he's taking me home someday. I need to tell my children that I love them very much and I love my wife, but my greatest love is reserved for the king who left the praise of the mighty burning angels in heaven who sang his praises day and night, who descended to shame and poverty and pain and death so that I don't have to descend to final death. I need to tell my coworkers that my life may not look like theirs because I'm following a king who has captured my love through his gracious work and perfect example. I need to tell my neighbors that the reason they hear singing coming from my house during Thursday night discovery group and when my family does outside family worship is because people who've had done for them what's been done for me they have to sing about it. People shouldn't, we shouldn't just tell because, you know, if you just tell, you don't have any, you need proof to back it up. So people should see it. People should see that my happiness is tied up with this person called Jesus.
People at my work should see that I live a different life and that the only explanation for how I live is a person and his name is Jesus. My unsaved neighbors should see that the way I interact with my family shows a love that doesn't look like the loves that they know about, uh, that the world practices, but it looks like a heavenly love, a Christ-like love, because I want to be like the one I love. My children should see that my happiness isn't dependent on their obedience, but it depends instead on the work of a king whose rule is not threatened by their or my disobedience. And so when, whether they sin and I respond with love instead of anger, or whether I sin and they see me respond with humility and asking for forgiveness, it's important that they see. So I, I want to, if our mission is to declare, I want us to, I want us to think about that. It's, we have to stay focused on that mission. Part of that mission is declaring the greatness of God. Now, Isaiah showed us how a sight of the glory of God is what drives us to willingly and eagerly engage in our mission of declaring God's greatness. Now, I want you to think with me about us as a church. How some of our, I wanted us to think through some of our core values, how they flow out of this, this vision of who God is propelling us towards, uh, declaring who he is and how good he is. Think about with core value one. Um, we believe that sound biblical teaching creates and sustains love for God and people, right? In other words, going back to God's word again and again is how we're going to see God. Therefore, all of our gatherings, from Sunday morning worship to family worship, we encourage all to do, discovery groups, whatever it is, we want it centered on God's word uh, because that's where we're gonna see Jesus. That's where we're gonna find out who he is. But core value number four says we believe in God-centered, there's a lot of adjectives, God-centered, Christ-dependent, Holy Spirit-empowered, biblically faithful, historically connected, musically diverse corporate worship. And each of these flows out of the idea of declaring who God is. It's God-centered because it's him that we see and savor and want to praise and make known. It's Christ-dependent and Holy Spirit-empowered because no one, no one sees God and treasures him and sings out of the overflow of a heart-satisfied heart unless Christ died for them and the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to them. It has to be biblically faithful because it matters what we declare about, uh, that, that it matters that what we declare only what God says about himself, not just what we imagine in our heads, right? Uh, even if those imaginings stir emotions, it has to be based in God's word. Um, it, it's historically connected because we recognize we're not smarter and wiser and have more of the Holy Spirit than generations and generations of Christians who've come before us, right? They had as clear a vision of this mighty king, this whole, this, they had the Holy Spirit showing them Jesus just as much as we do. And so we're historically connected, or we try to be. And we're musically diverse because God, God is way less concerned about the style of our music than he is with the truth and love and outpouring of our hearts. And we wanna be less concerned about the style of our music than we are about those things as well. Core Value 8 says, we believe that parents are the best and primary teachers of spiritual truth to their children. We believe children become faith-filled adults by being with faith-filled adults. Parents, you are in a unique position. I am in a unique position as a parent. 
Now, unlike most of the other adults in, a, in your child's life, parents have unique opportunities. It's through the amount of time you spend with your kids and the specialness of the relationship you have with them. Uh, you have unique opportunities to form what your child loves. Uh, it's just amazing how study after study from both the Christian world and from the secular academic world shows kids tend to grow up and love what their parents love. And that's how God has designed the parent-child relationship to work. Uh, so here's the question you gotta ask yourself that I have to ask myself. Do you want your kids to love Jesus? Is that what you want? Uh, do you want them to have an authentic faith that doesn't just see them through the years in your home, uh, uh, but sees them through college, marriage, children of their own, and eventually their death and accounting before this great king. Um, sees them through it and, then, and connects them to a savior who will faithfully take them to heaven to live with him. If that's what you want, then this passage is telling you and me and it's telling me that the most effective thing that we can do to cultivate our own love for Jesus is to grow in our own satisfaction and pleasure and knowledge of this amazing king. If we do this, if our love is authentic and permeates our lives and we are around our kids so they can see it, we will find opportunities to tell our kids where we find our treasure and they will see the evidence in my life that my love is real and my prayer then is that they will love what I love. Now, we, I could go into each and every core value, how it flows out of this mission that includes declaring how good God is because we have seen how good he is with the eyes of faith that Jesus gives us. Uh, but I'm probably already, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's talk about some practical applications for us to think about as we leave here today. Now, if we, if we wanna worship this Savior, out of a heart that's satisfied with how good he is, you, you gotta see the Savior, right? You gotta see him. Uh, do you, so you gotta do things that put him before your eyes on a regular basis. And what kind of things uh, put him before your eyes? And again, I'm not asking for actual answers, but I'll, I'll, I want an illustration to help us think about it. How unnatural would it be if you think about a young man or a young woman in love, which may have included some or all of us at some point, I don't know, um, how crazy it would be for such a person to have letters, handwritten letters from their sweetheart while they were separated, uh, but they never spent any time reading them. Uh, they only glance at them maybe on occasion, keeping them in a drawer somewhere. Um, it's crazy, right? No, you can't think of someone who's really in love doing something like that. And, and so, so too, we need to see Jesus in his word to us. Um, the Bible, right? If you aren't regularly reading God's word, spending, spending time there, finding him, uh, reflecting on his greatness, learning more about his glory and magnificence and love, you're not gonna see this savior as he is somewhere else. Uh, you're not going to see him as Isaiah saw and loved him. Your heart, excuse me, your heart will not treasure him the way it ought. And so we all need to plan how we are going to be spending time in God's word. Make it regular. That's why we do the series at the beginning of the year, right? This is a fresh start. This is, well, almost the beginning of the year. Uh, we gotta plan and make this a priority and make it regular. And when you fall or disappoint yourself or fall out of the habit, like I know I do, uh, recommit and start again. 
I love Lamentations 3.23. It tells us God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning. You know, you so that's, I just, that's when I try to do my Bible reading time is in the mornings. And that's when my failures to be regular and consistent about being in God's word, they keep me most reliant on his mercies. When I fail through the weakness of my flesh and the limp affections for this savior that is it's my natural state, I trust that he's faithful. So I start again and I count on his help to carry me through and show himself to me anew every morning. We need to see this Savior. We need to be with other people who see this Savior too and will remind you of how good he is. So spend time with other Christians intentionally, not just on Sunday morning. Um, if, if, if you think showing up to church on Sunday morning is gonna help you see this and savor this Jesus, you're like a person who thinks that just tuning into the Super Bowl once a year is gonna help you see the greatness of the Packers. Not gonna happen, um, especially this year. Sunday morning worship, I don't want to downplay Sunday morning worship. It's so important because it's when we come together as a group and declare the goodness and the greatness and our love for this Savior as a single unified body. Uh, But you also have to have close relationships uh, with a small group or discovery group, other Christians. Uh, That's what these are supposed to provide where you can hear about the amazing things that this amazing Savior has done and is doing in the lives of those who love him. That's, that's the type of scene that leads to declaring. So there's some things we should be doing. So the real king sits on his throne, forgiving rebels who respond with grateful praise. What we do, we tell about this great king. We tell about this great king. Please pray with me. Lord, we have eyes that wander, that look at so many things and and do not stay fixed on you. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your word working powerfully in us. We need encouragement from the believers you've put around us. We need you, Lord, to do this work of causing our eyes to be fixed on you. Uh, so that we see how good you are and then the outpouring of our hearts and our mouths and our lives is worship as we declare how good you are and back it up with our lives and our actions. Lord, we, we humbly rely on you and we trust in your goodness to do this, that you would make your name great, Lord. We thank you that you are committed to the glory of your name and you will see this done. And we thank you for using us do it. We pray that you would be with us, strengthening us, and causing us to rely on you always. In your name we pray. Amen. So if the worship team wants to come up, um, I wanted us to sing Be Thou My Vision together. Um, I had this sung at my wedding, actually. Bethany and I chose to have this sung. Because, you know, whether things are going bad or whether it's, you know, the happiest day of our life, what we always need is God to be our vision, and that should be our prayer, that he is our vision in all things.